Hey, good morning, guys. My name is Dan, and I'm the Director of Communications here at Redemption. I just want to thank you for joining our services today. Are you 18 to 30? Have you ever wondered what your calling is? Maybe you're called to shine the light of Christ in a secular business. Maybe you've been thinking that you're called to missions or full-time ministry. Maybe it's being called to be a full-time parent. Wherever you're being called, we believe that every Christian has been called to a few things. Join us on Saturday, November 28th from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. for our Young Adult Called Conference. The good news is that it's free. The great news, it's going to be amazing. Register today using our app or directly on our website right here. This time every year, we partner with Samaritan's Purse for their annual Operation Christmas Child. This year, due to the unique challenges of COVID, their campaign has moved online. So please head to their website if you'd like to get involved and to find out all the details. Join us this Thursday at 7 p.m. here in the Worship Center for an evening of hope. This will be a live stream event from Hope Bible Church in Oakville with guest speakers from many GCC churches. Join us for a time of prayer and encouragement from God's Word. We hope to see you here. And now, due to the health unit strongly discouraging congregational singing, we would ask those here in our worship center that during our worship times, please listen to the words, hum along, or sing softly to respect those around you in light of the whole COVID situation. Thank you guys, and God bless. Church, good morning. Let's all stand together. Our God is on his throne.
Father, we know you're on your throne ruling this morning, sovereign and with love. We worship you, Lord. We trust you, Lord. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord? There is no one, no one. Stop the Lord Almighty. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power. comfort for us. Amen. Such comfort for us this morning that the Lord is on his throne and ruling. Praise your name, Lord. Now and forever, love will never. 
Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destructive. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. 
celebrate all that he is, our everlasting God. Strength arises when we
good. I invite you to take a seat. We are thankful in our church for families. We're thankful for the parents that God has put in place and for the children entrusted to them. Uh, we have a wonderful privilege this morning to participate in what we call family dedication. Some people refer to it as child dedications. We do want to dedicate the children to the Lord and entrust Him with them. Uh, but we also really, this is really the parents dedicating themselves to the high and holy calling of parenthood. And this is something we do a number of times a year for parents who want to publicly commit before their Lord and their church family their wholehearted desire to raise their children in the ways of the Lord. It's clear in Scripture that parents are given the responsibility and privilege to raise up, to disciple their children in the Word and the ways of the Lord, in the ways of salvation and sanctification. So what the parents today will be doing is committing themselves to this high and holy calling and responsibility, publicly stating their trust and faith in God's provision, God's care, and God's calling upon their lives and upon the lives of their child or children. And so we have a number of parents who are going to come now and join me here on stage. So I want to invite three families to come up here and uh, stand here in front of us. They're bringing with them uh, children in their family, and uh, some it's just one that's being dedicated, and, but other children are here with them. And uh, they are going to do what they're going to do today is publicly affirm and dedicate these children and themselves to the critical task of raising these children for God's glory. Before they do that, we're going to take a minute to sort of introduce these families and children to you. They have provided us a little bio on the child being dedicated and some pictures as well. So I encourage you to just watch the screen as we get to meet these families. Leland Hodge, son of Stephen and Clary Hodge. We are dedicating ourselves to raise Leland in a home where the gospel is shared and lived out and where Christ is treasured. As Leland has been adopted into our family, we one day hope and pray he will be adopted into the family of God. Ivan Wong, son of Peter and Sabrina Wong. We've chosen the name Ivan as it means God is gracious. We're getting Ivan today because he belongs to God and is loved by him more than we could imagine. We pray that he is among God's chosen and that we'd be given wisdom to know how to nurture in Ivan a heart to honor God with his life. Ridley Rector, daughter of Scott and Ashley Rector. We are dedicated to raise Ridley to grow in a love for Jesus alongside her siblings and in a household where we strive to put Jesus first. Well, I want to congratulate all of you and thank you for your participation. I know all of you and excited for you as parents and as children in this calling before the Lord. I do want to remind you, these little ones that are being dedicated today, David said of these ones in Psalm 139, for you, are formed, you form my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you, and I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And so the Lord is sovereign in your families and in these children's lives, and we're excited about this. Scripture says these little ones are a gift from God to you, and you are stewards of this gift before the Lord for what he has entrusted you with. 
And to each of you parents, let me remind you that you're here with this intent to publicly dedicate your children to the Lord and also to express your open commitment to raising them in a home where they will hear the gospel, they will see it lived out in your lives, that you, you will work to help them come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord and to seek their walk with Jesus as a faithful disciple. So I'm going to ask you now to make three commitments. I'll read these, and after each one, I would ask you to respond, we do. Do you promise to set before your child an example of a humble, teachable, spirit-filled, godly Christian life? If so, answer, we do. In the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses, do you promise to do your best to teach your child God's word and the truths of Scripture? If so, answer, we do. And do you promise to seek to explain the gospel to your child and call on them to repent and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior? If so, answer, we do. I'd just like to read a blessing from Scripture over your family. It comes from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. As we leave the stage this morning, over here someone will give you a letter, and this letter is written on behalf of our elders, and it's designed, the idea is that on the child's 12th birthday, you will give them this letter, and it'll explain to them your intent on this day, and our intent as a church as well. Uh, good luck in finding that all those years from now, but we would encourage you that just kind of as a reminder of what has sort of transpired this day. I'm going to now call on us as a church family because these families are a part of the larger family called the body of Christ. And so we have a part in this as well with them. Our part in this dedication is to commit to pray, to lovingly and faithfully pray for these families and to encourage them in their walk and in their call to parenting as the Lord would enable us. It's also our calling to live out our faith in such a way that these little ones, as they grow, they see Jesus Christ in us individually and as our families and as a church family. So I'm going to ask you now to stand with me. We're going to have a prayer on the screen that I'm going to ask all of us together to pray out loud as part of our commitment and our prayer and our heart before the Lord. So let's pray these words together as our prayer today. Heavenly Father, we lift up these children and their parents. Guide them in the way of truth. Teach them to be patient and dependent on you. And bless them with the joy of life in Christ. Help us to be vehicles of your grace as we love and encourage these families. We pray you will make us all godly examples for these children to follow. Give us the courage to support and walk with these parents as they seek to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Above all, we pray that you would be glorified in and through us, your church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's uh, congratulate these folks. And...
Ask us to do and be as your church, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, you may be seated. To make sure you know about an evening of hope, Thursday, November 19th, an evening of hope. Doesn't that sound good? It's been a trying time, hasn't it? Many people are discouraged. Many people need a great dose of hope. That's why we're doing it. We're going to gather with our church, Hope Oakville, gathering with other Hope Churches too, actually named Hope, that's so awesome. Mississauga, Toronto West, T North, even Living Hope in Georgetown, I pray is gonna join us as well, and many other churches remotely live stream for an evening of encouragement to remember Jesus Christ is reigning. He's coming back soon to come together, to be excited, to have such great teaching, to pray together all in one night, in two hours, seven to 9 p.m., Thursday, November 19th, Evening of Hope, 
You can't miss it, okay? Come here in person, watch online, together encouraged. Hope, hope, hope. May it be so. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to see you. It has been a pleasure, a great pleasure to be with you these three Sundays. If I'm not mistaken, I'm scheduled to come back. I think it's the first Sunday in the new year, isn't it, Norm? Something like that. It is going to be interesting. That might be an understatement, but it's going to be interesting at the least to see all that transpires here in Ontario between now and then. And we will certainly be praying for you, praying for redemption. And we do ask you to be praying for us. Us as a family, Allison and Emma are with me this morning. And us as an institution, Heritage College and Seminary, it has been a interesting semester so far. On the one hand, it has been a little wearying and frustrating, given all of the restrictions, as you can imagine. And on the other hand, the Lord has blessed us in some unanticipated ways. And so it's really been a, a real mix the past couple of months. We're in the home stretch, the remainder of the semester now. And so be praying for us that we finish well, that the students who are growing a little weary, those, especially those who are on campus, that they finish well, and the Lord really prepares us and readies us for whatever the situation come January, and that he would continue to use us as an institution as we seek to be instruments of proclaiming God's word, instructing those men and women whom he brings to us, and that this might lead in some way to the furtherance of his kingdom from coast to coast to coast and around the world. Let's continue to worship together, taking God's word, uh, the Bible, and turning together to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Back in the late 90s, I read a book that was formative in my thinking by a man named David Wells, and the book was entitled, No Place for Truth, or Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology. And there is much in that book that the Lord used in my life to shape my thinking, but there was a phrase that David Wells used a couple of times in that book which grabbed my attention at the time, and it has held my attention ever since then. The phrase is this, the illusions of progress. The illusions of progress. And he makes the argument, basically makes the argument that as a society, speaking of Western civilization, we are enamored with the illusions of progress. What he means by that is simply this. We can communicate with each other using our cell phones. We can get on our laptops, tablets, whatever, and communicate with email and all sorts of other mechanisms for staying in touch. Uh, we can harness, now in Western civilization, we can harness the power of wind and water. We can harness the power of the atom. We can send spacecraft to uh, Mars to take pictures. We can build skyscrapers which touch the clouds above and enormous bridges which traverse rivers and valleys. And all of these are wonderful. And we should be thankful for all of these technological advancements. But David Wells' point is this. All of these things are the illusions of progress. They give us the impression that as human beings, 
we are progressing. That as human beings, we are advancing. That as human beings, we are getting better. When in actual fact, we are not. We are in darkness. But these illusions of progress deceive us into thinking that as humans, we are much further ahead today than we were back in the dark ages. No, we are still in the dark ages. We are still in the dark. Uh, this darkness is spiritual. Paul tells in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are separated, alienated from the life of God. We are therefore in spiritual darkness. Many of us don't realize that. We deceive ourselves. Uh, I grew up in Markham, just northeast of uh, the big city. And um, it was just a hamlet back in those days, just really a farming village, Markham. And I used to love our fall fair. And as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old, every autumn off we'd go to the fall fair with all these different sorts of uh, exhibits and rides. And uh, don't judge me, but one of my favorite things was the House of Mirrors. I don't know why, looking back now, but I just got a kick out of the House of Mirrors. You'd walk into that. I was eight, eight nine years old. You'd walk into that thing. And some mirrors would exaggerate your height, right? And some would exaggerate your width. And I just, I got a kick out of that. I thought that was hilarious. But you know, that's how many of us go through life. We live in a house of mirrors. A completely distorted view of ourselves. And a completely distorted view of reality. Here is reality. By nature, we are alienated, separated from the life of God. And therefore, we are in spiritual darkness. And many of us, because of this self-deception, because we live in a house of mirrors, we convince ourselves that somehow in this life we can find happiness, we can find ultimate meaning, but it just proves so elusive, does it not? You know, the right soulmate is not going to make you happy, friend. Um, let me pick a fight. I I'm not against the Hallmark Channel. My wife's sitting right there. I'm not against the Hallmark Channel. But we do, we do need to acknowledge some things when it comes to the Hallmark Channel, do we not? And romance fiction. What is the great, what is the great subject matter, the great motif of, of romance fiction is simply this. You have two soulmates, right? And they are separated. And there are insurmountable obstacles between them. And the real tension then of romance fiction you know, romance novels is to bring these two together over these insurmountable obstacles, unite these two soulmates so that they find what? Bliss, happiness. It's pure fiction. It's not real. It's not reality. Your soulmate will not make you happy, bring you ultimate happiness in this life. Your career won't do it. A heap of money won't do it. Success and making a name for yourself, the right house, living in the right neighborhood. None of these things can satisfy a restless soul. C.S. Lewis penned it wonderfully a few decades ago. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Is that not human experience? The restlessness of the soul 
And there is nothing in this world that can satisfy us. Objectively, friend, that tells us we were made, we were designed, we were wired for something else, something better, but we're in darkness. We have been separated, alienated from the life of God. But not only is this darkness, not only is it spiritual, it is intellectual. As human beings, we gravitate to error rather than truth. You can think again, just stay with me on this whole idea of the meaning of life and ultimate meaning and how we try to explain within Western civilization today, how we try to explain human existence, human reality, human experience, and the absolute futility of trying to explain these things within a closed, secular, materialistic worldview. All you're left with is the Lion King. All you're left with is Elton John, the circle of life. And somehow we're supposed to infuse what is ultimately meaningless and silly life with significance because there is no ultimate reality beyond the here and now. Oh, such intellectual darkness. As one author put it, we are told, we are bombarded with this message. We only go around once. And we should forget about the past, and we shouldn't worry about the future. Oh, but the anxiety and loneliness of such a philosophy is almost intolerable, and our society objectively testifies to it. It is an intolerable worldview and an intolerable philosophy. We are in intellectual darkness. This darkness isn't only spiritual alienation from the life of God. It is not only intellectual inclined to error rather than truth. It is moral. We are inclined to evil rather than goodness. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we brought into this world, as brought into this world, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. Now, stay with me here on this one. Some of you might be tuning out right now. You're thinking, just, I don't need to hear this. I did not come here today to hear this. You need to hear this, friend. You know what? I, you know what? I, I do have a couple of notes up here that helps me stay on track. And this morning, I was just kind of looking at these, glanced at these notes, and I, and I wrote in big letters, tenderhearted, to remind myself, just to be tenderhearted here and not too, not too harsh and not too confrontational. But we just, we just need to hear this and come to grips with it. Uh, moral darkness. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. One of my favorite books growing up, those who are of Scotch heritage, you're going to be, this will just resonate with you. One of my favorite books growing up, one of my favorite authors, Robert Louis Stevenson. And uh, one of my favorite books, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, perhaps you've never read that book, but you've heard the expression, haven't you? We use it all the time. It's familiar. In reference to someone who has, you know, really unbelievable mood swings, what would we say? Oh, he's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And if someone were to stop you and ask, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm not, well, I'm not really sure where that came from. It's a book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And in that book, Robert Louis Stevenson, he's actually examining human nature. And the central figure is this individual, this man, Dr. Jekyll, and he's respectable, medical doctor, uh, respected in his community, well-known, upstanding citizen. 
But the problem is this. He has secret inclinations to sin that no one knows about. His mind is a cesspool of iniquity. And there are things he indulges with the mind, but he will never actually put in action. Why? For fear of being caught. For fear of the repercussions. For fear of the consequences. So what Dr. Jekyll does is this. He invents a potion. A potion that will change him into someone else. Edward Hyde. And whenever he changes into Mr. Hyde, he can go out and indulge everything he wants to. His most deplorable fantasy, his wantonness, out he can go, he can indulge in it, the potion will wear off, he changes back into Dr. Jekyll, and nobody is the wiser. And so this goes on for months. He will take this potion in the evening, turns into, transforms, in, transfers into Edward Hyde, off he'll go and indulge his lusts, his desires, everything else. In the morning, he transfers back to jo transforms back to Dr. Jekyll, and nobody is the wiser. After a few months of this, he comes under some conviction and some discomfort. He's uh, a little disturbed by some of the things he's been getting up to. And his conscience is bothering him, so he decides, you know, I'm not going to take this potion anymore. I'm not going to take it. And I'm not going to do any of that stuff anymore. And not only am I not going to do any of that stuff anymore, but I'm going to devote myself to really contributing to society. And I'm going to start giving so much money to this, that, and the next thing. And I'm going to start volunteering, doing this and that. And I'm going to start doing good and engaging in good and the betterment of my fellow man. And that goes on for some months. And one day as he's sitting in the park and he's reflecting on his life, especially the last few weeks, he's feeling pretty good about himself. And he's comparing himself to others. Comparing himself to other men and women who are walking by. Comparing himself to other people he knows at the church. Comparing himself to family members and neighbors. And as he compares himself and all of his self-perceived goodness and how he has contributed to others and he's been such an upstanding citizen and neighbor and all this kind of stuff, suddenly this qualm and this shudder comes over him. And to his horror, he looks down. And without taking the potion, he has transformed into Mr. Hyde. The name is intentional, Hyde. You cannot hide what you are within. You cannot hide it. You cannot cover it up with a veneer of respectability. And there are two ways to rebel in the face of God. The one is this, self-indulgence. The other is this, self-righteousness. And both come from a den of iniquity. And both arise from a darkened, darkened heart. That individual who goes off, yes, into a wanton lifestyle, what we might describe as hedonism, yes, rebellion before God. And that individual who thinks to himself, thinks to herself, well, I'm not like them. I can check off this, 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 and this. Therefore, before God, I'm fine. I come before God on my own merit. I come before God. I appear before God on the basis of how I have lived, on the basis of what I haven't done or what I think I've done. The same darkness of heart, self-love, is the same governing principle in both instances. And so wherever you fit on the paradigm, it is the same problem. The fountain is polluted and unacceptable in the sight of God.
And we are dead, dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. And therefore, we find ourselves in utter darkness, and the darkness is moral, it is intellectual, and it is spiritual. And it means what? We stand in need of light. You found Matthew chapter 4, right? You've forgotten that I asked you to turn there. We're ready for it now. Matthew chapter 4. And follow as I begin reading in verse 25. We'll go right to the end of the chapter. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now ease into this text with me. We begin verses 12 through 16. These verses conclude Matthew's introduction. The introduction began obviously back in chapter 1 verse 1 and the introduction now concludes here in chapter 4 verse 16 and he goes off in a different direction. Verse 17 opening phrase from that time. Jesus embarks fully on his public ministry, and that engages Matthew's attention then as he describes it right through to the end of the book. And so we have the introduction, chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 4, verse 16, and how does Paul, uh, Matthew conclude this introduction? By again pointing us to the Old Testament. He has done this repeatedly throughout these four chapters just packed full of allusions to the Old Testament and citations from the Old Testament. And so he wraps up his, his introduction with one more Old Testament quotation, and it is taken from Isaiah chapter 9, the first couple of verses. Now, I know this is a little tedious. Stay with me. It's of fundamental importance. 
And so he has the prophecy of Isaiah in view as he wraps up his introduction. What's going on in Isaiah chapter 9? Isaiah predicts, prophesies two events. The first event is this. These foreigners called the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire, they are going to invade the northern kingdom of Israel. And they are going to be the instruments of God's judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel because of their rebellion toward God and their rejection of the covenant. In 722 B.C., what happens? The Assyrians invade. And they overrun the northern kingdom of Israel. They leave it desolate. And they take countless captives. And they take them away into captivity, into exile. And they transplant foreigners into the northern kingdom. That's the first thing Isaiah prophesies. This judgment is coming. The second thing he prophesies is this. There's hope. A day will come. A day will dawn. A great light will shine forth. He, he names the territory. Zebulun, Naphtali. It refers to the northern kingdom. That the people dwelling in darkness. The people who have gone through this bondage and this captivity and this oppression. They're going to see a great light. And those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, a light is going to dawn on them. Now, when it comes to Old Testament prophecy, always think in terms of the immediate and the ultimate. The immediate fulfillment is the restoration. Because, you know, a century later, the Babylonians are going to come. And they're going to invade Israel, namely the southern kingdom of Judah. And they're going to destroy Jerusalem. And they're going to take captives. But somewhere around 538, 537 B.C., what happens? A remnant returns to the land of Israel. You can read all about it in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. That is the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. That a remnant returns. There is a restoration. They do come back to the land. But the prophets, the Spirit of God uses those immediate events to point to something of far greater significance. To point to the messianic age. To point to the coming of Christ. And that bondage in exile in Assyrian captivity and Babylonian captivity, the Holy Spirit uses them to point to a far greater bondage, a far greater darkness. And it is spiritual, it is intellectual, and it is moral. And he points to that hope of restoration. He uses it to point to something of far greater significance that is a redemption, a great rescue, if you like, accomplished by the Messiah. And so the Lord Jesus, he moves to Galilee. He moves to this region. And Matthew, he wants to make this point. Aha, this was to fulfill what was prophesied by Isaiah hundreds of years ago. The true light has come. He has entered this world. And this light now dawns upon those who are in darkness. And this is how he ends his introduction. And he set us up then with this great expectation as he brings his introduction to a conclusion and then he transitions from that time. But he set us up in terms of expecting what is coming in the rest of his book. 
And basically then what he does in the rest of this book is he explains what it means. This great light has dawned. And it means three principal things. And he introduces them in verses 17 through 25. And then the rest of the book simply fills in all the details. So the great light is now shining. The great light has dawned. What does that mean? Three implications packed into verses 17 through 25 and then developed in the rest of the book. Did you get all that? Thankfully, these things are recorded, aren't they? So you can go back and you can hit play and pause whenever you want with pen, pencil, paper and jot all that down and figure it out because it's kind of big picture, isn't it? But it's important. It's paradigmatic. But it's important when it comes to our handling of Scripture and interpretation of the Word of God. And so we have the great light. We're now into verses 17 through 25. And Matthew wants us to see three things about Jesus, about this light. Here we go. Number one, Jesus is an illuminating light. 17th verse. From that time, Jesus began to preach. He's a preacher saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Skip down to verse 23. And he, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so he is preaching. He is an illuminating light. And notice the content of his preaching. It focuses on three truths. The first truth is this, right out of verse 17. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The entire Old Testament has been predicting the coming of this kingdom. It has been prophesying the arrival of this kingdom. It has been pointing to, preparing for the arrival of this kingdom. The king has come. Matthew has made that clear in his introduction, chapters 1 through 4. If he's trying to make any point, it is this. The king has come. The promised Messiah is here. His name is Jesus. Guess what that means? The kingdom has come. And with the coming of the Lord Jesus, we have the inauguration of that kingdom. We do not yet have the consummation of that kingdom that awaits his second return. But at his first advent, he inaugurates, he establishes the kingdom. He now reigns and rules from the right hand of his Father on high. He reigns and rules by his word and his spirit. And he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to consummate the kingdom and usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And so this is the first thing we need to understand concerning his preaching because it will be central in the book. The kingdom has come in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second component of his preaching is this. It's command, repent. Oh, repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from love of self to love for God. Again, it's rooted in an Old Testament context. I mean, what is basically the essence of the Ten Commandments? The essence of the Ten Commandments from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself is this. You must love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. We don't love our neighbor as ourself. 
And we most certainly do not love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What do you think about most in this life? I'm not trying to pick a fight. I'm just trying to state the elephant in the room. It's not God, friend. What do you think about most? What do you really think will make you happy? Fill in the blank. I'll be happy when. Fill it in, friend. There's your God. And you know what? As soon as you achieve that, it changes. It'll be something else. I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when. You are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do we cherish our self-righteousness more than God? Do you cherish indulgence? I don't know. Sex, pot, beer? I don't know. More than God. Do you cherish your unsaved girlfriend more than God? Do you cherish your pursuit of wealth more than God? We could go on and on and on, and I could ask a thousand questions, and the end of it all, the conclusion would be the same. We do not love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus' message remains unchanged. What is it? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does repentance mean? I don't know where I found this. It was some years ago. Different accident reports that people had submitted to their insurance companies. The telephone pole was approaching fast. I attempted to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. How about this one? The pedestrian had no idea which way to turn. So I ran over him. <laughs> we laugh. That's how we go through life, friends. It's everyone else's fault. Everyone else is to blame. We're always the victim, aren't we? The victim of this, the victim of that, the victim of this, and the victim of that. Friend, we need to just come to grips with who we are. And we must repent. Saul is such a tragic figure in Scripture, isn't he? You remember... You know, once it's pretty clear that the throne is going to pass to David, you know, Saul really has it in for him. And so he determines in his heart to, to murder David. And off he goes in hot pursuit, chasing that young man. And in one case, uh, David is hiding in a cave. Do you remember this? Those of you brought up in the church, you know, you remember this Sunday school story, right? David is hiding in the cave and... Um, Saul's armies pass by. Saul goes into the cave, take a nap, relieve himself. And uh, while he's napping, David, who's in the back of the cave, Saul doesn't know he's there, he sneaks up on Saul and he removes a piece of the, uh, the garment from his, from his clothing. You remember that? And then he just sort of hides back in the inner recesses of the cave. Uh, Saul wakes up. He emerges from the cave. David goes out after him. He says, oh, king. Look what I have here. You were in my hand. I could have slit your throat. And do you remember Saul's response? David, you are more righteous than I. Repentance? What's he doing just a couple months later? He's chasing David again. 
And he's with his army, encamped in the field, dead of night, sound asleep. And uh, David, with a couple of his men, they sneak into the very center of the camp. There is Saul sleeping. David's men, they want to pin him to the ground with a spear. And David says, no, let's just take his spear and his water jug. And off they go, back out from the camp. They wait till the dawning of the day. And David's up on a high rock, and he calls out, Saul, Saul, what, 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 do you recognize these, Saul? Could have killed you. You're in my hand. And you remember Saul's response? This is tragic, folks. Do you remember his response? I have sinned. Repentance? Weeks later, what's he doing? He's chasing David again. Make no mistake here, friend, is the difference between heaven and hell. The nature of repentance, it is to turn from sin. It is to forsake our sin. It is to acknowledge and to confess, yes, I am a lover of self. And that has manifested itself from ever since the cradle right down to the present in innumerable ways, a lover of self. And I do not love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the message of the Lord Jesus is this, you must repent. Oh, but there's a third component to his message. Yes, the first, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, the second, repent. And the third is what? Down in verse 23, He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Mark, in the parallel passage, Mark chapter 1, he actually tells us that Jesus is preaching parallel passage. Yes, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of salvation. And this good news of salvation is going to become so crystal clear in the remainder of the book. We can fast forward, for example, to chapter 9. And there we're going to encounter this man with his friends. And, and the Lord Jesus in this crowded room, just packed full of people. They're like sardines in a tin, right? You can barely move. And, and these friends have this, this, this individual is a paralytic. And they want to get him to the Lord Jesus. So up they climb onto the roof. They open up the roof. They lower him on his pallet right there at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And what does the Lord Jesus say to him? The four, perhaps the most precious, among the most precious words in all of Scripture. Are you ready for them? Four words. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Well, that's the good news of the kingdom. That is the gospel of salvation. And that, my friends, it is not conditional. It is not contingent on our performance. It is not contingent upon anything we have done. It is not contingent upon our merit. It is Christ's promise to all who believe in him. All who receive him through faith. Your sins are forgiven. The name John Newton probably means a lot to a number of us. John Newton, he was a slave trader back in the early 1800s. Deplorable individual. You can pick up his, auto, his biography, recent biographies. And he was, uh, boy, he would not have been someone you would have wanted to hang out with. John Newton. And uh, the Lord saved him. And he penned that hymn, we all know it, Amazing Grace. It's autobiographical. 
And he is celebrating how the Lord rescued him, how the Lord saved him, brought him from pride to humility. How the Lord brought him from despair to delight. How the Lord brought him from darkness to light. And what is that little phrase in that well-known hymn, Amazing Grace? I was blind darkness, spiritual, intellectual, and moral. I was blind, but now I see Jesus is an illuminating light. Second thing Matthew wants us to notice about Jesus is this. He is an inviting light. Look again at verses 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus is an inviting light. Now here we're introduced to four disciples. They're actually named for us, right? Peter and Andrew, James and John, and these disciples, this band of disciples, are going to become central in the remainder of this book. How many disciples are there? You've known this. You've known this for years, most of us, haven't we? How many are there? Twelve. That's no accident, folks. How many tribes of Israel? Twelve sons of Jacob, twelve tribes of Israel, and it was those twelve sons that formed the foundation of Old Testament Israel. Now we're going to be introduced to twelve disciples, twelve followers of Jesus. What is Matthew communicating to us? He has already made it clear that Jesus is the true son. Jesus is the true Israel. He's the one that God brought up out of Egypt. He's the one who has passed through the waters. He is the one who has defeated the devil in the wilderness. He is the one who has proved himself by demonstrating that he does love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's the true Adam. He's the true Israel. And all who are knit together with him through faith become what? The new Israel of God. And the foundation are these 12 disciples, these apostles, the foundation of the church, the foundation of the church of the living God. But notice his exhortation, his command to these disciples is just two words, follow me, follow me. William MacDonald wrote some years ago regarding this commandment, it is abandoning all for the one who abandoned all for us. Follow me. Andrew and Peter, what do they give up? Their nets, their livelihood, their income. John and James, what do they give up? Who do they leave behind? Their father. You have livelihood and you have family. Jesus is not saying, and I most certainly am not saying, that we're supposed to just forsake our jobs today and forsake our families. If that's your conclusion, you've missed the point completely. The point is this. To follow Jesus is what? 
It is to make him of preeminent importance in our lives. It is to heed what he is going to state at least three times in the remainder of this book. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. My friend, this is not an invitation to better health. This is not an invitation to more money. This is not an invitation to fewer problems. This most certainly is not an invitation to your best life now. This is an invitation to deny yourself. This is an invitation, a command to deny our sin, deny our rights, and deny our preferences. John Piper put it as follows. Please listen closely to this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the beauties you ever saw, all the pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven? If Jesus were not there? That's a very uncomfortable question. It's a very telling question. And I'm just looking at these words I've jotted down here again tender hearted. Be tender hearted. It's a very telling question because I fear that for many of us, Jesus is nothing more than an accessory. It's just an accessory. You know what an accessory is, right? You're all wearing one right now a mask, it's an accessory. Some of you are wearing glasses. Some of the ladies have bracelets and watches on and earrings. They're accessories. Guys sometimes put on a tie or a ball cap. They're accessories. If we took a walk through the parking lot, we'd probably find someone with fuzzy dice hanging from the rearview mirror. It's an accessory. Is Jesus just an accessory in your life? A convenient add-on. That's not discipleship. That's not his kingdom. That's not his rule. Uh, he is an inviting light. And his invitation is pretty pointed and it's pretty straightforward. Follow me. Follow me. It is to deny ourselves. It is to take up the cross. And it is to follow Christ. It is to make him of utmost and preeminent importance in our lives. The third thing we need to notice about Jesus is this, and it too is going to be predominant in the rest of the book. Jesus is an inspiring light. Look at verse 23. And he, again, it's a personal pronoun, it's reference to Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. We get that, we've covered that. And what else is he doing? Healing. Every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. 
Just notice two words there in verse 24. They're a pretty good summary of everything that's happening in these verses. Diseases and demons. Diseases and demons. Both are going to be extremely prevalent right through to the end of the book. Diseases and demons. Diseases and demons. And Jesus is going to demonstrate repeatedly by healing all of these different kinds of diseases and by casting out all of these demons, whether there be but one or it's legion himself, for we are many. And in so doing, what is he demonstrating? Why is this of such significance? Why does Matthew include this summary statement right here and then unpack it through the rest of the book? Why such emphasis on diseases and demons? Demons and diseases. The answer is threefold. The first part of the answer is this. It confirms that Jesus has indeed inaugurated the kingdom. The kingdom has come. You'll recall, we were there a couple of Sundays ago. He's in the Jordan River, and he is baptized by John the Baptist. He emerges as he is emerging from the waters of baptism. The heavens open, right? And the Spirit of God descends like a dove. That dove is intended to make us go in our mind's eye back to the flood. We don't have time to unpack that right now. And it is intended to make us go back all the way to the creation account, the creation narrative. Why? Because there we read that the Holy Spirit hovered, fluttered over the earth, over the waters. In the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, it actually includes he hovered like a dove over the deep. And so when the Spirit descends in the likeness of a dove, we're, we're supposed to have a aha moment. And we're supposed to go all the way back to creation. And we're supposed to understand that just as God created all things through the Word, by the Spirit, that now with the Lord Jesus coming into this world and Him establishing His kingdom, what has just happened? It is the dawning of a new creation. He has inaugurated a new creation. He is going to make all things new. Now, steady on and remember this. He has not yet consummated that kingdom. He has not yet consummated that new creation. It waits for his second return. And here we are as Christians living with this awful tension, terrible tension, because the kingdom has come but has not yet come. And the new creation has come. But it has not yet come. And here we are. We belong to the kingdom coming. We belong to this creation coming. But we're living right now still here under the curse of the fall in the present. And the Lord Jesus casts out demons. And the Lord Jesus heals diseases to demonstrate that that kingdom has come. And that new creation has dawned. I glance at my watch. Do I go down this road? Stick with me. I better go down this road just for one person, just for the sake of one person, okay? It may be you. That individual who's sitting there reading this, familiar with the gospel narrative, and you've just had the cancer diagnosis three weeks ago, three months ago, or you're, you're, you're suffering with something else, okay? You fill in the blank, and I, I feel it. I feel your pain. And um, well, Jesus heals. And, and you've been listening to Benny Hinn 
I know we don't like to name names. It get, makes it a little uncomfortable. Sometimes shepherds, preachers, pastors need to pull out the big stick. They really do. And drive away the wolves. Tenderheartedly, but drive away the wolves. The Todd Whites, the Kenneth Copelands, whatever. And you, you're, you're really confused and, and you don't understand. Is it because I'm not going to the right church? Is it because I'm not given enough money? Is it because I don't have enough faith? Because I just keep hearing this. If I just had enough faith, he would heal me. God has, has not promised to heal you, friend. He has not promised to heal you. He has promised to sustain you. He has promised to use whatever you're going through for his glory and your good because he works all things together for good. He has promised to preserve you and keep you for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. He has promised to provide you with all that you need to honor him and follow him in this life. But when the Lord Jesus was here on earth, he was inaugurating the kingdom and all of this healing, the casting out of the demoniacs, which carried over then into the apostles who were the foundation of the church, it was all declaring that the kingdom has come. It was all unique to that time period. Now steady on, can God heal? Of course God can heal. Does God heal? Yes. I know instances when he has healed. Should you be praying for healing? Of course you should be praying for healing. And you can email me and tell me what's ailing you. I'll pray for healing too. But he has not promised it to us. We cannot name it and claim it. And if you feel beat up and just worn down because you're confused and you're thinking to yourself, well, it's because there's something wrong with me and I just don't have enough faith. No, friend, you've been lied to. I'll say that again. The stick is out, Norm. Is this okay? You have been lied to. You've been lied to. He has not promised you that. He has made wonderful promises to you, and he may very well choose to heal you if that is his sovereign plans and purposes for you. And pray for it. And at the end of it, you simply add these words, thy will be done, not mine. Thy will be done, not mine. The kingdom has come. And all of these diseases and demons testify to the fact that, yes, that new creation has come, but the removal of those diseases, the removal of all the consequences of the fall, the removal of all that troubles us and torments us, it is awaiting the return of the king, the consummation, when he will make all things new, body and soul, heaven and earth, and wipe away every pain, every tear, and it will all be but the shadow of a memory. That's what's going on here in the first instance. Second thing going on here is this. It points, these diseases and demons, it points to what Jesus accomplishes at the cross. It demonstrates the fact that at the cross he bears the curse. And part of that curse, it is summed up, not just in diseases, not just in demons, but as you get into Matthew chapters 8 and 9, we're going to confront the deep and the storm and devastation, right? We're going to confront death itself, all of the consequences of the fall, a result of the curse that hangs over humanity. And at Calvary's cross, the Lord Jesus bears the cause of that curse. It's man's sin. And in the Lord Jesus, that curse is taken away. 
And in the Lord Jesus, there is salvation and there is this assurance as we live by hope. We do not live according to things we see. We live by hope, by the Word of God, and we navigate the troubled waters of this life that a day is coming when all that stuff will be removed. And we know it will be removed because the curse has been dealt with definitively upon Calvary's cross. And here's the third thing going on here. It isn't so prevalent right here in these verses, but it's become so prevalent. It declares Jesus' healing ministry and casting out these demons. It declares that Jesus abounds in compassion. Did you hear that? Oh, he abounds in compassion. He is moved with pity as he encounters men and women, boys and girls, living under the consequences of the fall. He's going to reach out and touch that leper, isn't he? The woman with the hemorrhage is going to reach out and touch him. He's going to heal the paralytic, the man with the withered hand, the blind, the mute, the deaf, and he is going to cast out demons right, left, and center. And as he does so, we see that he is moved with such compassion for his creatures as he sees them oppressed, laboring under the consequences of the fall, the consequences of the curse. So tenderhearted. The story is told of a young boy. I heard this years ago. I hope I've got it right. But a young boy, he goes off to the doctors because he has abdominal pains, stomach pains. And uh, it's been going on for some weeks. Off he goes to the doctor, walks into the office, and the doctor just lays into him, you know, twisting him this way, twisting him that way, poking here, prodding there, just kid is in agony, just treating him like a rag doll. All these diplomas on the wall, his medical history and training and everything, and the little boy turns to him and says, you might be brilliant, but you're brutal. You might be brilliant, but you're brutal. Oh, some tender-heartedness, some compassion. Oh, there's a fountain, bottomless fountain of compassion in the Lord Jesus Christ. For all who hear his preaching, his message, his invitation, repent and believe the gospel. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We began these three sermons a couple of Sundays ago. Do you remember? little stanza from a hymn. Do you recall that? One of you are shaking your heads. Some of you are staring at me. No, I don't recall. Well, we did. We started with a little stanza from a hymn. And this is where I want to end these three sermons. There is a name, and I trust we can all say this as we reflect back on these texts in Matthew. There is a name I love to hear. I love to speak its worth. It sounds like music in my ear the sweetest name on earth. Our Heavenly Father, may the name of the Lord Jesus indeed be sweet to each and every one this day. Perhaps you will have to bring some low. You will have to bring them to an acknowledgement of the darkness of their heart and the rebellion against you before they can taste of that sweetness and of your grace that is found in Christ Jesus. For others, it might be that they just feel beaten down by life. Your children, circumstances overwhelming. 
May they truly taste and see that the Lord Jesus abounds in mercy and loving kindness and compassion, tenderheartedness. And we pray that as your people, we might be edified and built up by what we have just heard. Again, may it be for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Spoke of the words of this uh, of this hymn. Um, this is the tune. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear. The sweetest name on earth. Oh. How I love Jesus, oh, how I love Jesus, oh, how I love Jesus, because he first loved me. Let's all stand together. Strong. 
together there's a name we love to hear lord it's yours it's the name of jesus be able to sing with all our being being and all that we are oh how we love jesus oh how we love jesus because jesus you first loved us so we go now as we seek to be the church to be faithful with your strength with your presence 
in us, Holy Spirit. We trust you. We love you. We look to you, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time as a, as a church to be together, both here in person and online, to be strengthened, Lord. Be strengthened in Jesus' name. In your name we pray. Amen. Church, go in peace. We'll see you next weekend.